Uh, well, it is wonderful to be back with y'all again. And uh, one of the, one of the uh, real joys of this particular trip and spending time with your pastors yesterday was to hear about your 30th anniversary. So how wonderful is that? I was thinking about that this morning and this scripture came to mind that I think so um, describes uh, this church in the past 30 years. So I just wanted to read it to you for your encouragement. It's from Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So thank you on behalf of Sovereign Grace for really representing that and for walking in a manner worthy of the Lord and walking in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. And uh, our prayer continues to be for you. You will be strengthened with endurance and patience, with joy for the next 30 years plus that I believe God has for this church. So thank you, thank you, thank you for the church that you have been. We can open to Psalm 51 this morning. Psalm 51. And we're going to talk about repentance this morning. Uh, if you're at all clued in to the national news, um, we really live in a shaming culture, don't we? Uh, just had a variety of expressions of this of late. And uh, this shaming culture has been multiplied uh, by the effects of social media. So... Uh, if there is anything from your past or anything in, in your present uh, and uh, the culture gets a hold of it and it's not uh, according to what is um, acceptable in the culture, whether right or wrong, um, you're in trouble. There's just an off with their heads uh, kind of attitude that we have in the world today. And as a result, if you kind of find yourself in that crosshairs, uh, I think there's a variety of temptations that come upon people. One is, is you want to hide, you want to deny, uh, you want to get, get out of the spotlight as much as you possibly can. Uh, oftentimes you'll see apologies issued uh, that come far short of uh, any sense of the word apology. This is particularly true of sports figures. If in some way I have offended anyone, um, or uh, you can simply capitulate uh, to uh, the social pressures and resign. Now, imagine if King David lived in our day instead of the day in which he lived. And imagine what would happen with this particular very serious scenario. Uh, his soldiers are out to war, and David notices this woman, the wife of one of his soldiers, 
Bathsheba, and he commits adultery with her. Um, Commits adultery with the wife of one of his most faithful servants, uh, a man named Uriah. While Uriah is away at war fighting for king and country. And she gets pregnant. And so David tries to cover up this pregnancy by uh, inviting Uriah back from the war for a conjugal visit. Uh, But being the man of integrity and character that he is, uh, he refuses such a visit while his comrades are at war. So David goes to plan B and he invites him to a feast and gets him drunk, hoping that will loosen up his uh, scruples a little bit, but it doesn't because Uriah is a man of integrity. So uh, he arranges for Uriah to get killed in the next battle, uh, which also makes Joab his most trusted general uh, and accomplished to this murder, and the plan works. Uh, Uriah gets killed, uh, but oh yeah, they, they also lose a battle, and some other soldiers in the army get killed uh, as well in collateral damage. And when David finds out, he callously tells Joab this, uh, do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. And in a short period of mourning, uh, Bathsheba and David uh, get married. But then he gets exposed to public scrutiny. So what is he going to do? Hide, deny, issue an insincere apology, or just capitulate and say, I'm done as being a king? Well, what he does is something that really sets him apart from so many today and sets an example for us as believers throughout history. And what he does is he repents, genuinely and truly repents. Not like people who are sorry they get caught or sorry they're in the public eye, sorry that their sins are causing them hardships, but a true and a deep and a God-honoring and a God-pleasing repentance. Uh, Repentance so genuine that David actually writes a song about it so that believers throughout history can remember what this true and genuine and God-honoring and God-pleasing repentance looks like. And we want to take a look at that song this morning, Psalm 51. So would you together with me hear the very words of God to us. Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. <coughs> so David makes three points here that we want to look at about true repentance. And that is this, that true repentance knows the greatness of sin and the greatness of grace and speaks of the greatness of God. True repentance makes up three things. It knows the greatness of sin, but it also knows the greatness of grace and speaks of the greatness of God. So let's pray together. Father, uh, we thank you for this song, this psalm, that uh, helps us to look at repentance very differently, not as something to be dreaded, not as something to be avoided at all costs, but something to be embraced as a gift from you because of the work that it does in our own souls to restore us and because of the way that it magnifies the greatness of your grace. So, I pray as we look at this psalm today that we would be more gospel aware of what it means to be sinners who have a Savior that is abounding in grace and mercy. So I ask these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first thing that we see here is that true repentance knows the greatness of sin. In verse 17 David writes, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Um, I just find my own repentance to sometimes uh, be quite shallow. You know, I know that I sinned, 
and I know that I shouldn't have sinned, and so I need to ask forgiveness, and I ask forgiveness, and then it's done with. Uh, That's actually what David's talking about here in verse 16, the meaningless sacrifice that doesn't uh, please God. Uh, Now, that's good as far as it goes, that we acknowledge and confess our sins and ask for uh, forgiveness. Uh, But it also falls far short of the broken and contrite spirit that David talks about here. So maybe some of you can relate to my experience. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that every time we sin, we have to somehow work up this emotional state of guilt and condemnation and, and tears, et cetera, et cetera. All I'm saying is I think it would serve us all, I know it would serve myself, uh, to grow in our depth of contrition when we sin. And David really shows us three ways that we can do that. And the first way is this, that uh, true repentance recognizes sin's depth. It recognizes how deep sin goes. Uh, Notice in verses 1 through 3, David actually uses three separate words uh, to describe sin that have different shades of meaning uh, in the original Hebrew language. He he talks about transgressions. Uh, Transgressions means willful defiance of God or rebellion against God. Uh, I'm not going to do what God tells me to do. Uh, Iniquity. Uh, deviation from the right way or to go astray, and then sin, uh, missing the mark, uh, but more than that, failure by choice, purposefully missing uh, the mark. So David begins by just unpacking uh, these, these manifold aspects of sin, that sin involves far more than the modern, well, I messed up. Uh, And then in verse 6, he recognized that that his sin actually went far deeper than just his behavior, uh, the things that he did, the adultery, the murder, the lying, the cover-up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He recognized that his sin springs from his heart, that that sin goes down to uh, the very depths of his being. Uh, Scripture constantly recognizes that the wellspring of our actions, what our actions come from, is uh, our hearts, our inner drives, our inner desires. That's why David says that God delights in truth or loyalty or faithfulness and wisdom or moral uprightness in the inner being, in the secret heart. In other words, in the very depths of our our being, uh, we we recognize uh, where our sin is coming from. And not only in the very depths of our being, but from the beginning of our lives. Notice verse 5. I was brought forth in iniquity. I, I was sinful from birth. So sin isn't just something that I did. It's who I am. When we sin, when I sin, it's not some freak event. It's not some unusual confluence of circumstances. You know, when the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars and all of a sudden it just made me sin in in, in some way. Uh, Every sin is actually completely in character 
with who I am because I'm by very nature a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. And David recognizes that's where his, his sin comes from. You know, maybe you've had that experience, but sometimes uh, I'll sin in a way that's a bit unusual for me. And somebody might say to me, wow, that wasn't like you. And I think to myself, yeah, really, that, that wasn't like me. Without really realizing, no, that was exactly like me. I was just somehow being more creative uh, this particular day or this particular time. And the net effect in, in David's life and, and, and in our lives of this awareness of, of, of sin's depth is a self-awareness. In verse 3, my sin is always before me. Now, that doesn't mean that David thought about nothing but his sin uh, 24-7. That's not what he's talking about. It simply means that he doesn't take his sin lightly. He doesn't move on from his sins too quickly or too casually. He takes sin seriously as he ought to. So, so true repentance starts with recognizing sin's depth. True repentance also recognizes sin's direction. Notice verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned. Now, when you read the story and when you hear the story about David, we get against you, against God, but, but whoa, 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 wait a minute. Against you only have I sinned? Uh, well, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about Joab? What about the army? What about the nation? What, what is David talking about here? Well, it's not that, that, that David doesn't recognize that he sinned uh, against all of those people or he is somehow downplaying it. It's that he's properly overwhelmed by the holiness and the goodness of God and his duty towards God when he sins. That it's, that it's God himself, it's his laws that, that he is defied, that he is turned away from. It is God himself that he has failed. And his repentance recognizes that ultimately, when we sin, it is God that we sin against, rebel against, turn away from. So it recognizes sin's depth, uh, recognizes sin's direction. And then he also recognizes sin's deserts. Notice verse 4. I've sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. Do you notice there's no complaining in this psalm? David recognizes because of his sin, he has absolutely no right to complain of any consequence that God might bring his way. So he says also in verse 4, God, you are blameless. Other versions say you're justified in your judgments. God's judgment against sinners, God's judgment against our sins are never, ever, ever unjust. Sinners, me, sinners justly deserve the severest punishment, death including eternal death in hell. That's why David asked God to have mercy on him 
not according to what he deserves. Did you notice? Have mercy on me, O God, but not according to what I deserve, but according to your steadfast love. Have mercy on me, not to what I deserve, but according to your mercy. You know, we, we really do live in a day where uh, it's easy to think that God takes sin less seriously than he used to. We live in a day that it's very easy to assume God's grace and to assume God's mercy and actually to be surprised and discomforted when we see God's judgment. Uh, David was having none of that. He recognized what his sins deserved. And so in verse 11, he, he prays this, cast me not away from your presence. He recognized what the worst of sin's consequences are. He recognizes what sin ultimately deserves. And that is, for God, the only source of blessedness in this life or in the life to come throughout eternity to cast him away. So, so David would say, Look, bring on Philistines. Let's, let's have a civil war. Bring on famine or disease or even bring on physical death, God, but just don't cast me away from your presence. Just don't abandon me. I can live with any suffering in this world, but I can't live without you. I can't live without your presence. I, I know, I know what my sin deserves, but please, not that. Please, please, anything but that. Don't cast me away from your presence. Now, if this was all that repentance knew, then uh, I'd go around in a constant state of depression and hopelessness. If, if all I knew was the depth of my sin and the direction of my sin and the deserts of my sin, if that was always what was always before me, I, I don't know what I would do. In fact, f far from, from asking God to not take his presence away from me, I'd want to do all I can to be outside of his, uh, uh, of his presence in that situation. But that's not all the true repentance knows. True repentance knows much more than the greatness of sin. True repentance knows the greatness of grace. Uh, in 1968, I flunked out of a junior college, and it was right during the middle of the Vietnam War, and I was going to get drafted. So I went and joined the Naval Air Reserve, uh, and uh, I went off to basic training in Memphis, Tennessee, not at all knowing what to expect. And I very quickly learned that uh, there is not to be an expectation of grace and mercy in basic training. Uh, I remember at, at times someone would do something and they would say to their drill sergeant, I'm sorry. And the drill sergeant would say, that's right, boy, you're about the sorriest thing I've ever seen in my life. Now you get down there and give me 500 push-ups. 
And in that kind of environment, you very quickly lose any expectation of mercy or grace. And in that kind of environment, you do everything you can to hide your transgressions and you resign yourself to to punishment if you do get caught. There's no hope in that kind of environment. So where does David find the hope? Where does he find the downright audacity? And I don't know any other word to describe what he prays for here. Where does he find the downright audacity to ask God to have mercy on him? Given the greatness of his sin. Well, the answer is simply this, that David didn't simply examine the greatness of his sin and lose hope. He remembers the greatness of God's love. And he remembers the greatness of God's grace and mercy. So you notice how he prays in verse 1. Have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. David doesn't have any hope based on his, his merit. He knows what he deserves. He doesn't say, hey, you know, I know I've done some bad things in my life, but come on, God, I, I've been a good king and I've done a lot of good things in my life. And what do you say we just uh, forget about that? His, his hope is not based on him at all, in him at all. His, ba- his hope is entirely based in God's character. And there's no greater reason for us to have hope when we sin, then in God's character, in his steadfast love. Steadfast love is, is a covenantal term uh, that, that expresses God's loyalty, his faithfulness to his people that he's, that he's taken uh, as his own. Uh, David freely confesses, I'm a terrible sinner, but God, I'm your terrible sinner. I, I'm in covenant with you. And so I rely on your your steadfast love. He realizes that as the New Testament says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That God's grace and God's mercy, that that they're abundant. And so as a broken man and and a contrite man, he continues to pray. First of all, he prays for forgiveness and reconciliation to God. Notice verse 1, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And I love that term whiter there, just the completeness of forgiveness. Not just pure and clean and bright like fallen snow, but purer and cleaner and brighter and whiter is his hope. And then verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. You know, isn't it so common, like David did with Uriah, isn't our first impulse often to want to cover our tracks and hide uh, our sins and kind of hope nobody notices? But here's the reality. God always notices. Uh, And David realizes uh, what he really needs is not to hide his sin, but to confess his sin to uh, a God who is full of mercy a God who is willing to wash and cleanse and blot out his sin. Not in the the sense of sweeping it under the carpet somehow, but in the sense of uh, erasing it, completely doing away with it, forgiving it. 
and as part of that forgiveness to be reconciled to God. Uh, We already talked about uh, verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. But then he says this, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Um, David, David wasn't just concerned about God's presence, but David was concerned about God's purposes for him. And that's why he prays like he does about the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the, the, the Spirit came upon someone for a purpose, and, and the Spirit could be taken away if that person failed in that purpose. Uh, Saul, uh, the king before David, would be a perfect example uh, of, of this. Um, for the New Testament believer, the Bible does say our, our sins, that the Holy Spirit isn't taken from us, uh, but our experience of him can be quenched. Uh, we can grieve the Holy Spirit by our unrepentant sin. Um, and so we not only lack this sense of his blessed presence, uh, but sometimes because of our sin, God puts us on the bench uh, from fulfilling his purposes that he has for us uh, for a time. And so David prays for, for forgiveness and he prays for reconciliation. But notice he also prays for the power to change. Uh, when we see the greatness of our sin, it's very easy to cry, free me from the punishment. And David does that, but also free me from the power. I want to be done with sin. And so David continues in his his prayer in verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Uphold me with a willing spirit. In other words, he doesn't just want forgiveness. He wants to be different. He, he, He wants to change. He wants to become a steadfast man. He wants to become a faithful man. He wants to become a God-pleasing man. He wants to become a holy man. He wants to become a useful man. So he doesn't just pray for forgiveness. He prays for this power to change. If if your response uh, to your sin is, is just, God, forgive me, as wonderful and necessary that is, and not, God, help me to grow, help me to mature, help me to become more like Jesus, you're missing an important part of what true repentance looks like. And, and you're likely to be one of those people that just falls back into the same sins over and over and over again because you were more concerned about the consequences than you were about your character. Don't be, don't be that person. Um, be like David who recognizes the need for the power to change. And oh my, if David could write a psalm like this, as Christians, Hebrews tells us, we have an even better hope than than he did, an even greater grace than he had. And we have that because of the gospel. His steadfast love and his abundant mercy are ours through a sacrifice that God always and forever delights in, and that is Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. See, it's his shed blood that washes away our sins. It's his shed blood that blots out our iniquities. It's his shed blood that makes you whiter than 
snow. And it's his risen life that gives you the power to change. That's why we have a better hope. If you have trusted in Jesus genuinely to save you, if you've repented in your sins, of your sins and trusted in his sacrificial death, you never have to wonder if your transgressions will be blotted out. They will. You never have to fear that you'll be cast from his presence. You won't. You never need to worry that the Holy Spirit will be taken from you. He won't. And you never have to wonder if he'll renew a right spirit within you. He will because of what Jesus has done. 1 John 1, 9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that doesn't mean that we can ever afford to take forgiveness or for granted or be unconcerned about sin, confession, or uh, repentance. Uh, notice in verse 12, David also prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation. N- not restore to me your salvation, uh, because that can't be taken from us, uh, but the joy. Um, when we sin, it does displease God. It, it, it does introduce a strangeness in our relationship with him. It, it can introduce a, a distance in our relationship uh, with him that not only can cause us to be benched in his purposes, but, but can cause us to lose the great joy we have in the salvation we have in him. Um, an, an unconcerned attitude towards sin and confession and uh, repentance, it's not going to cause you to lose a salvation. Although, let me warn, it can be a sign that maybe you were never genuinely saved in the first place. But it won't cause you to lose your salvation. But it leads to nothing but a joyless life. Uh, The greatest joy in life is to be right with God and to be fulfilling his purposes for your life. There is no greater joy than that. And that's, that, that's, that's what sin uh, disrupts. And that's why repentance is such a gift to us. Because God has given us this gift so that the greatest joys that we could ever experience could be restored to us when we inevitably sin. So let me ask you this to my brothers and sisters here in the Lord. Is there any sin in your life that you're harboring or hiding? Is there any sin in your life that you think about that you just, I hope nobody finds out about this. Uh, I want to keep this secret. You know, may, maybe you've, you've tried for years to overcome it yourself and you just find yourself falling back into it over and over again. Is there any sin like that in, in your life right now? that has introduced this, this strangeness with you and God that has seemed to bench you in his purposes, let me, let me implore you to receive the gift of true repentance this morning so that that sin can be blotted out and you can uh, be renewed in your spirit. Um, for teenagers here, is there any sin that you're hiding from your parents? 
uh, I know very easy for teenagers to just have sins that I don't want mom and dad to find out about this. And uh, you think, well, maybe I can get away with this. And so is there anything like that in your life? And then for all of us, um, I love the superscription to the psalm when Nathan the prophet went to him. Do you have people in your life that can, that can go to you? Uh, do you have the gift of, 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 of someone like a Nathan in your life that's willing to tell you the truth? Uh, repentance is a gift, but so are friends like that. And if you have one, uh, I'd encourage you uh, to encourage that relationship with them. Well, lastly, and um, the band can come. Are we doing a song? And the band can come. Uh, true repentance speaks of the greatness of God. Notice verses 13 through 15. So when all of this is done, when he, when he recognized the greatness of sin and the greatness of God's grace, and he appeals to God to renew a, a right spirit and restore the joy of salvation in him, and I, and I think he's experienced these things, true repentance speaks of the greatness of God. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Well, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praises. Our, our praise, like in this context on Sunday mornings, but also our witness, they're, they're to be fueled by this abundant provision of forgiveness and reconciliation that we have in the gospel and that we have through true repentance. Uh, being familiar with and impacted by your own sin in, in, in light of uh, God's judgment and then recognizing that you have received that forgiveness is such an impetus to tell others about that and, and to tell others um, not sharing as, as a mere observer but as someone who has walked the same path as, as, as they have. And so uh, to our non-Christian friends that may be here with us today, uh, let me thank you for just being here um, today. But let me also encourage you, there is abundant grace and mercy and forgiveness uh, available for you as well. There's changed life available for you as well uh, through the power of the gospel. And I would encourage you to not wait one more day to come to the Lord in faith and in true repentance to receive this glorious gift of salvation. Well, let me pray. Uh, Romans 4, 7 through 8 says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count against whom will not count his sin. Well, Father, I, I thank you for examples, good and bad, in Scripture. We see the reality of ourselves in, in David. Maybe we sin in different ways, but in essence, uh, our sins are the same. Um, they're deep and they're against you and they deserve your punishment. And yet, oh Lord, you have been so gracious to us through Jesus to provide us forgiveness. So uh, I just pray in, in all of our lives, in my, starting in my own life, that, um, Father, our response to our sins would 
regularly be a turning to you with a, a true repentance to receive the grace and mercy and steadfast love that are so abundant in you. Father, if there are hidden sins here, I pray that they would be confessed and come to light so that every person here could experience the glorious grace of forgiveness and reconciliation, could have the joy of salvation and the right spirit in their heart renewed. Grant us these wonderful, wonderful graces, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.